podcast. My name is John McRae and I play the band Cake and uh, here I am. I need your arms around me. I need to feel your touch. Hey, it's Zach here of The Show on the Road, and this week I get to bring you a conversation that I've been hoping to have for many years. In my mind, John may be one of the most underrated rock poet-songwriters of the last generation, and Cake, I think, is one of the most criminally underappreciated pop rock bands of our time. And I want to jump ahead real quick to that point in the interview where I asked John how exactly they created their oddball hits by doing it their own way. You produced pretty much everything yourself, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, because of that, because... Because we wanted a less is more production value, uh, not a glistening, uh, sort of golden, emotionally satisfying production value. We, we, there are, I'm not going to mention the producers that I hate, but those producers were very popular. Um, and some of them were like, you know, punk rock producers, some of them were grunge, some of them were, you know, adult alternative, but. For me, at that point in time, they all sucked. I hated them a lot. A golden bird that flies away, a candle's fickle flame. Well, even in that that first song, Rock and Roll Lifestyle, the specificity within these lyrics is is pretty intense, right? It's something that, again, maybe mainstream radio is going to be like, wait, what? You're talking about... Uh, pills and hospital bills stuff that people are going through that no one really wants to talk about you're talking about income tax brackets yeah in a pop song right (laughs) yeah well I just think it's it's um, it's deceptive not to include those subjects isn't it sense what some of you were thinking right now. John is a bit of a salty character, isn't he? He's creating music that he loves based on the music and the production that he hates. And yet, the more I start to create my own music in this crazy lockdown period we have, I find that he has a point. You have to figure out the music that you don't want to make before you make the music that you want to make. I've been in bands since I was about 13 years old. And Cake, they're one of my biggest inspirations of all time. So sit back, relax, and here's my conversation with John McRae. Are you up in Portland now? Um, sort of, yeah. I mean, I, I go back and forth a bit still because most of my family is still in Northern California. But um, increasingly, Northern California became uh, less of a community for musicians and artists. Uh, due to the uh, real estate bubble and tech bubble um, I just watched all of my all of my musician friends just leave over a period of time and I hung on for a long time but it's just it's less interesting for me to have uh, uh, there are still musicians there but they're like they work at tech companies and the music is a hobby but you know. Have you ever considered working for a tech company and having music as a hobby? <laughs> um, I mean, I thought about it. I don't think I'm, I'd be very valuable to a tech company, honestly. Um, it sounds fun, though. Free uh, cappuccinos and uh, gourmet Mexican food. We visited the Google campus one time, and 
holy shit, it was like being in ancient Rome during the height of their power of, you know, like fountains and, um, you know, works of art by famous uh, sculptors and artists and um, everybody had their dog at work and there was the cappuccino was just flowing everywhere. Cappuccino um, fountains. Yeah, it was just nuts, like organic gardens everywhere and they had uh, flown in uh, acrobats to, we, <laughs> you know, like to like perform and it was just nuts. One of the stories that I love telling about my band Dust Bowl Revival, who used to get hired by Google to do like, you know, background music at their events for engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty thankless job, but they paid okay. Right. Um, we would go up to like Palo Alto or Mountain View or whatever, you know, where their campus was. And there was a time where I think the new CEO of Google wanted to parachute into the party from his private plane. Nice. Powerful. Powerful. Man of the people, if you will. And uh, he wanted our trombone player to play the the Spake Varustustra or whatever oh, you call nice. it. Uh, oh my god. That's but awesome. The, the problem was that his assistant on the ground didn't have a reliable like communication device to know when he was gonna jump. Oh. So we so we just kept playing da 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 for like twenty straight minutes. Holy shit. That is awesome. That needs to be, somebody needs to include that experience into... Uh, it's like a Portlandia episode or something. Exactly, I was going to say, into like some sort of episode of a Silicon Valley or whatever. What's that oh, yeah, show? yeah. Yeah. But I think that somebody needs to write about that. Like, well, somebody needs to write about the pudge of Silicon Valley. Just the, just the, just the bulbousness of it, you know? Yeah. Well, it's like machismo, but from the nerd perspective. Yeah, it's wish fulfillment. It's like, okay, I was made fun of in high school, but now I'm richer and better than you, and I'm going to demonstrate that in every way I know how. Yeah. By planting organic gardens and having all these people work for me. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. But. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a kinder, gentler sociopathy. Yeah. It's something that I feel like Cake in the 90s would have narrated beautifully. We, we, we would have loved to. We had to, we were, actually, I have, I have, I have included uh, a bit here and there, but I do it slyly and I, I don't want to offend our overlords. Well, you had a song like No Phone, right? Yeah. From, uh, I mean, what was that? 2001. Yeah. 2001. You know, that's before the smartphone era. Yeah. Right? But you were already sort of asking us, you know, are you okay with this invasion of privacy? Yeah. Are you, are you okay with uh, everyone watching everything that you do? And, because and, it, and, the, and the answer was a resounding Yes, we're okay, (laughs) because that song, like, people did not respond emotionally to that song. You know, it was just, uh, it was like, yes, we're okay with it, you know. See the feathers fly, no I think a song like No Phone feels 
so much more relevant now, maybe than it did at the time. The cell phone use uh, skyrockets when the iPhone drops, right? And you see the decline in mental health, children's well-being, oh, yeah. all this stuff happen. But you're talking about this when we're literally just talking on the phone with these yeah. devices. Like yeah, it's almost like you were talking about it before it even happened. Yeah, it's weird, huh? I well, you could sort. I mean, it, it, it wasn't entirely unpredictable, though. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, and you could feel what it was going to feel like ahead of time. Started the band, uh, which was around what, 91, 92? Yeah, yeah, I think um, something around then. I, I was playing like coffee shop gigs, uh, uh, working on a lot of songs, and uh, I ran into Vincent DeFiore, who was, you know, playing jazz improv trump trumpet, and I thought, okay, I've got these melodies that I don't want to be played on guitar. You know, maybe he could play some of them. And and I met Greg Brown, who was, you know, amazing guitar player. Um, and, and I, you know, we just kind of built something around those three people. And um, yeah, so and I was going back and forth between playing the song solo and playing as a band. And gradually, the band just had um, began to be more compelling to me. What were the job jobs that you were working early on? I mean, I I drove a truck uh, for a while, g- delivering pool uh, supplies. Um, wrote a lot of songs uh, in, in that truck. You know, had my little tape yeah. recorder with me. Um, uh, you just used all those hours pretty well um, for making up melodies, um, and then. Um, I also, my, my favorite job I've ever had was like socialism in a way. It was like, um, it was like funding for the arts. It was at UCLA. Um, uh, I was a audiovisual uh, technician. So nice. I was the guy that wheeled in the video monitor or, you know, was the projectionist for the Italian cinema class or... Um, videotaped in real time a brain surgery and projected wow. it onto the for a conference things like that that was a that was a fascinating job because I would I would basically on a daily basis I would dive deep into all these different subjects deeper than I belonged right I'm in the middle of yeah. like the ornithologist convention and they're talking about bird songs of you know and and I shouldn't, I don't deserve to be there, but I'm there uh, showing slides and playing recordings of, uh, of, of bird songs. Um, and I just found that like just a, an amazing experience and, you know, you know, pretty inspirational for a songwriter. And, um, and yeah, they, you know, they, they're paying me money to, to, to work on my songs, basically. You have a very specific, like, poetry that you put into your words where you're, you know, mixing almost freestyle hip hop or slam poetry into rock and roll, soul, funk, um, 
mariachi. I mean, it really runs the gamut. Yeah, it's kind of anti-genre. And your voice, your voice is very specific, which some people loved, some people hated. Critics lambasted, critics obsessed over. Uh, You know, my favorite part of the video that you created for Short Skirt, Long Jacket, which you also, I think, directed, right? Yeah. Was when people would react to this song in real time. You had them listening on headphones in Venice Beach and all over the place, businessmen and pot-smoking unemployed people at the tennis court and all these different people. But the one guy is an older African-American guy, is like into the song, and then he looks at the camera and goes, well, it'd be really hot if you had a different lead singer. Yeah. <laughs> and you yeah. leave that in. You leave that in the video, like there's this sort of almost masochism to the yeah. immediate reviewing of your music. Um, and that song specifically, you know, which I grew up listening to in Chicago, it was always on, you know, uh, XRT radio in Chicago. Um, and I always marveled at a song like that breaking into the supposed pop sphere because it felt like like a poem that I would have written in my bedroom joking yeah. around, you know. She's, right. changed, she's changing her name from Kitty to Karen. Like, it's just very specific that and no one else would say that and i'm curious if you felt like you wanted to fuck with people did you want to prove people wrong that this type of music could happen or is that just how you wrote music it's just how i wrote music and i you know yes i wanted to fuck with people but that's just how i wrote music i i don't i'm not able to i'm not good enough to like decide to write a certain kind of music. I just do what I feel. Um, I'm not, you know what I mean? I can't, like, I'm not like Lionel Richie yeah. and I'm going to write Dancing on the Ceiling. I'm going to write a pop song that's going to be a number one hit and it's, it's going to be called Dancing on the Ceiling. I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not able to do that yet. Maybe someday I'll be able to do that, but I have to sort of believe in the dream to, to really right. inhabit a song. And believe it or not, I inhabited short skirt long jacket. I, I felt that way um, for reals. Disappointment and grief, and uh, you know all those things that that I think are the rocket fuel for songwriting. Well, I think you wrote somewhere that pessimism and like uh irony which you know are both associated with your songwriting and our coping mechanisms for uh you know societal hurt you know trying to deal with uh a country that is very unfair to its citizens that treats the poor and different races women like animals <laughs> and you yeah. can kind of poke a stick at that uh boss man and be like no I see what you're doing you've got to have something you know I used to, I talked to 
a heroin addict one time and I, you know, I was being critical about this person sort of romanticizing their, their suffering. They, this is, this is a heroin addict that wrote pretty good poetry and, but it was all sort of romanticizing suffering. And I thought, you know, you're becoming suffering dependent. You know, you're depending on this for, to tell your, this is your story and there, and now you need that. Now you need suffering. And she said to me pretty matter of factly, um, yeah, but if that's all you have, you know. And so I think uh, what you're saying is, you know, cynicism. Irony. Uh, to, yeah, I- irony. These things are just like terrorism in a way. They're the tools of the oppressed. Yeah. It's, what you, it's what you got to work with. Well, it's the fool in Shakespeare's plays, right? It's like he's the only person, touchstone. I remember playing that in As You Like It as a high schooler, you know, the fool could tell people what was really happening and you couldn't cut off his head because he was too fun to have around. Also, yeah. the fool wasn't invited to the party. So the, the fool could actually see what was going on at the party. Like if you're in the party, if it's all subjective for you, you in a way you have in order to have objectivity, you have to be an outcast. You have to be not invited to the frat party. That's why, like, the version you did of I Will Survive, which became one of your most played songs, I think, like, is very fitting as the cover that you're known for in a way. Because <laughs> I feel like it's this heartfelt, emotional song of uh, perseverance, but put through this very dry and, like, direct lens. At first I was afraid I was petrified I kept thinking I could never live without you by my side but Again, some I people thought it was amazing Gloria Gaynor, not a fan <laughs> She didn't like the F word But I love it in that it, it's like it feels like a completely reimagined yeah. song that is perfectly uh, it perfectly fits in your world because you guys have had to withstand countless reimaginings of your band, of your sound, of uh, people not believing in you, people not thinking you're uh, legit, right? And you just keep going. And you guys had and continue to have a devoted following, myself included, who I think really love the bizarro alternate universe that you guys create. Yeah, well, I think, you know, too, I I think... uh, a lot of this is about baby boomer cultural dominance, um, because our you know the, our our strongest sort of skeptics were you know the people that believed in the golden statues of the '60s and the you know the I'm not going to say who any of the, the the artists are, but like the the baby boomers that tell you this the 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 stories of of the heroic you know, uh, 60s and 70s music gods. And and the, and all of that has a lot of sort of um, earnest, muscular, emotional uh, uh, forward motion that I think in a way doesn't make sense as much um, to people who came up later. Um, that was a, the, the baby boom sort of expansionist um, emotional dream is like looks luxurious 
Um, and so, and I'm not saying only only baby boomer uh, critics have been uh, harsh about us, but I think that um, it comes from that cultural story because we didn't fucking buy that. We went we went in there saying um, we want to be less. We want to be less muscular because fuck you. Um, and that's that was weird uh, for people that we wanted to be puny because fuck you. And um, so that's a, that's a, that is a cultural thing that we always knew we would have to deal with. And, and so it didn't, it actually didn't hurt us very much because we hated the music, a lot of the music, not all of the music that was being uh, put up on a pedestal for like ad nauseum for decades. So you start with Motorcade of Generosity. Um, well, you had that rock and roll lifestyle song first, right? That was the first single? That was a college radio song actually that happened before we signed a deal with Capricorn um and and I guess made them notice that we existed and they asked if they could license that album and we said yes um but yes it's really because of that song uh that anybody knew that we existed well, your CD collection looks shiny and costly. How much did you pay for your bad moto goozy? And how much did you spend on your black leather jacket? Is it you or your parents in this income tax bracket? Now well, I think you had a mentality that if people discover us, they discover us, right? Like, we don't have to please everyone. We have to just sort of uh, create music that pleases us first, which is really the way you should do it. But I think yeah, a lot of people... Sh- it's a short life, you know? <laughs> and there's and there's nothing worse than being surrounded by people who like your music, whose sensibilities <laughs> you don't like. Could you imagine right. that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of bands that you know, have that hit and then they have to only play that hit and then they can't really make themselves be anything but that hit, right? I mean, people said that, I guess, about um, The Distance with you, but I don't associate you with that song at all. You know, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, for some people, that's definitely what the only song that they know, um, and that's okay, but it, it softened... Like, in a way, the whole thing was confused by the fact that we um, kind of uh, started uh, becoming popular, if I can use that word, um, very gradually um, uh, over a period of time in different parts of the world. So nobody ever heard the distance in, for for instance, Brazil. Okay. Um, but... Never There came out, and that song just went through the roof there. And nobody cared about the distance, really. And then uh, Short Skirt, Long Jacket came out, and that was the only song that anybody talked about there. So we realized that the whole thing was kind of not about our value, but more about promotion cycles and, uh, you know, 
record company bullshit and politics. And we watched like a lot of the labels that like that we were on or that get bought by other labels and then disemboweled by larger labels. And, you know, like as our record is coming out. Um, so we it was good that we learned that that the important thing was just to make something that you like. And because there, you have zero control over how, how it's distributed, and that means fucking nothing. And you had, you know, pretty much immediate band turnover, even as you started getting bigger, right? So you had to kind of constantly mix and match sound and uh, musicianship, um, which, you know, can't, it couldn't have been easy. I mean, a lot of bands right now, myself included, are dealing with that exact same thing where people are reimagining their priorities coming out of the pandemic and going like, well, you know, I can't tour 150 days a year. So good luck with that. And I have to be the band leader and be like, well, the show is still going to go on and we're going to get some new blood in here. Um, did you bring in people that you knew friends of friends or like, how did you find the replacements and then the long-term players? Well, I mean, the, the, the only, like super serious uh, departure was uh, Greg Brown, um, you know, and um, you know the uh, the drummers and bass players are really important for this band, but we were always we were always lucky to have like there were other people that we knew that could be as good as or even sometimes better than the people that we were working with, and I'm not going to say, you know, mention names or anything, but that was always, I was always very relaxed and self-confident about that, but I wasn't about, uh, Greg Brown's departure, um, because he and I worked so closely together. Um, uh, he wrote the distance, his departure from the the, distance. Yeah. 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 And, and he also had a lot to do with my songs and I, I had a lot to do with the distance and we worked together. Um, it was really a partnership. And so when he left, um, it was, uh, you know, it was unsettling, but it was also a weird kind of rite of passage for me to, um, keep things afloat and, um, keep things interesting and musically satisfying, uh, uh, without Greg. So, um, he and I are, are friends now and we actually work together musically. Um, but it went, there was a period where there was some really um, Machiavellian politics within the band. Um, there wasn't really that much bad feeling between Greg and I. Uh, it had to do with a, a third party, but it was totally like Byzantine and, um, you know, complex um, and unfortunate, like wasteful. Um, but it also gave me a lot of confidence that I would have never realized um, that I had to say, I basically had to say, okay, this is up to me to figure all everything out for a little while until I find. Um, and, and the person who replaced uh, Greg, uh, it, we actually played a show with him and his old band, um, of, like, I don't know, five years before, um, Greg left and I remember watching his band and watching him play guitar I have a very vivid memory thinking to myself this is the only other guitar player 
that could play in Cake. Like I literally stood there watching him thinking because of really specific things about his attack and, and his precision um, uh, and, and like his sort of, uh, yeah, the way he leaned into riffs um, it's just very, very specific stuff. I had this, I had this realization. This is the only other person that could play in our band. And so when uh, Greg left, I thought, well, you know, we should try to get in touch with him. And eventually we did. But 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 the next album, uh, Prolonging the Magic, was, um, you know, I I decided that I wanted to sort of date other guitar players as it were right. musically so we got some I just I was I got some really good guitar players that I had always admired to play on various songs and it was really good because I, I got to sort of choose guitar players uh, for their strengths and and try to apply those strengths specifically to a certain kind of song and it was it was good from a producer's point of view I mean a song like the distance I think exemplifies what I think makes cake so uh, unique and special for me. It like has these like four or five elements that you guys ruthlessly continue through your records, right? This uh, right. sort of muscular guitar tone, Western kind of like horns or, you know, the trumpet obviously, but also this nineties R and B kind of synth play, um, the gang vocals sort of call and response, like a Greek chorus vibe, you know, and, uh, talking about something very specific, like, uh, you know, a race that people are on that maybe is about something very different about winning back a woman that does not give a shit about you. Yeah. He cannot define bowel shaking earthquakes of doubt and remorse. Assail him, impale him with monster truck force. Having these different elements uh, coming together, you know, that's a lot going on for a song that most people are just like, oh, it's a, it's a pop rock hit. You know, they're not maybe diving into the poetry of the lyrics. Uh, and you mentioned, I think, when that song came out, that you wanted those guitar tones to have like this Viking energy, <laughs> you know, like this macho vibe, which now those songs are played in like, they're played in like sporting events, which is kind of nuts, you know? <laughs> well, in a way it became that, you know, it's really nerds uh, uh, sort of making fun of things. Um, and then uh, like always happens in life, it ends up being the thing that it's parodying, you know? If you think about like Queen, right, and, and Freddie Mercury being this flamboyantly, uh, you know, gay musician who is never probably thinking about writing NASCAR hits, <laughs> songs that yeah, are played in no. every basketball arena at halftime, but almost the same thing with Jack White and the White Stripes, right? Seven Nation Army is played at every football stadium by every marching band across the country and he's this kind of nerdy yeah. scraggly haired kid from Detroit 
it's just a bizarre coincidence. I think that's what counterculture becomes mainstream culture very quickly, accidentally. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's fine. And, you know, I think it's ultimately a compliment to Freddie Mercury or Jack White uh, or me um, that um, a song has a physicality to it that this kind of monkey resonates with. And And I'm including myself in this kind of monkey. There's just a there is a geometry to the human body that uh, it's there's a math to certain things that you do musically that, um, you know, when it sort of clicks, it's it's really uh, uh, magical. What was the moment where you realized that maybe despite your (laughs) initial inklings that you were kind of like a rock star? Like, was there a moment at a show like in Japan or something where you're like, oh, this is like really happening for me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, there's everybody's, it happens for everybody in Japan. I don't know why that is. Um, I think I just, I started, I don't, I never felt like a rock star. I just felt like, holy shit. Um, they know my music. They're, we're, they're, somebody's listening to us and I'm not making them listen to us. You know, <laughs> like it's, yeah. they're just playing this on the radio and, you know, and I happen to hear it and that's, you know, that's a very strange feeling. Like for somebody that's been working to make something that that works for people to to like have to not be there sitting there with your with your um, player, music player and making them listen to it. But they're doing it of their own volition. That's a that is a crazy feeling. Right. Um, for the first time when that happens. But I didn't I never have really felt like a rock star or I have felt like I'm wearing a a a really alienating Mickey Mouse costume, <laughs> maybe that is of like a rock star, but it's like I'm underneath that big head uh, mask, and and there's like these battery powered fans underneath, and it's dark in there, and the, one of the batteries has run out for one of the fans, and I've got to wear that thing, yeah, and I'm trapped inside that thing for the rest of my fucking life. Yeah, I felt like that. I definitely felt like that. Like, no matter what I do, I'm just the guy from Cake now, and I'm I'm the singer of Cake, and that's fucking just hilarious, right? And tra- and tragic, right? When you when you can't get out of the Mickey Mouse costume, like no matter what you do, and you think you found somebody that you can talk to, but you never can. You never can because you're in that fucking costume and you can never look anybody in the eye again. Well, you thought about stepping away probably multiple times, right? Throughout the run in the late 90s when things got crazy and then started slowing down maybe mid-2000s? Um, yeah, I did. But I, I mean, I, I didn't think I could ever stop playing music. Um, I definitely wanted to stop touring because touring is, you know, it's this weird cross between you know, traveling salesman and truck driver, you know, it's, there's, it's not that glamorous and, you know, you you don't really meet anybody or talk to anybody. You're just thrown out on the stage for a little while and 
then you get back into the bus and travel, you know, for 16 more hours and you do it again. And, um, it's really pretty, it's pretty, pretty bleak. Um, and so, you know, I knew that that sucked early, um, and wished that I could find a way out. But as I started thinking about finding a way out, the tech industry came in and decided to devalue, um, uh, the work that musicians do in the studio and sort of, uh, in a way, monetize it with advertising with or without our permission. So the value of, of recorded music descended at the point when I would have liked to have touring, stopped touring so much. Right. So, yeah. Well, Prolonging the Magic comes out around 98, I believe. And that's sort of when you start really taking over as like the lead lead everything right i mean that's sort of like when it's your full project and you start bringing in different uh instrumentation that wouldn't have been in in previous records i I mean i love the the pedal steel and like a song like mexico you know i think that's such a beautiful song where you're actually singing a little more but i think it's Mm. um it's both like melancholy and sweet but also has this ominous <laughs> feeling in the background which is what I love about your lyric writing I had a match but she had a lighter I had a flame but she had a fire I was bright but she was much brighter I was high but she was the sky oh Tell me about that song a little bit. Um, yeah, well, so that is at a moment when I started to have more, um, you know, power or, or say-so over production decisions. Um, you know, um, I think uh, I've just always loved country music, and I've always loved 3-4 time, and, you know, I, I've always wondered why 3-4... Time signature had to disappear when it did. I think it's actually pretty telling. Uh, you know, there's a there's a decorous sort of deliberate feel to three four that I don't think is maybe appropriate for the t- you know the times that we live in now. You know, there's it, it's uh, four four is is more like marching forward a little bit in a rush to uh, to exploit resources and uh, go to war or whatever. There's just <laughs> something about us, I think, that in our... Um, and I, I think that, you know, I started writing Mexico in 4-4 time and didn't really like it very much. And then I, I decided to try putting it into 3-4 and the whole thing just woke up, you know. Well, it feels like uh, a bolero or something that's from another country, from a different tradition, you know, when it's right. not foreign, foreign the floor. Right, and something that has a little more time, you know, to 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 think about things and just to experience the moment. Four four. That's my criticism of four four. I love four four, but sometimes you have, you have to have three four. 
And you played some pretty wild places. I mean, what was it like playing in like Jakarta? Was that a crazy experience to bring this music to maybe places you never imagined you would be going when you're selling music out of your van in Sacramento to start? Yeah, no, well, you know, in Jakarta, I was sick the whole time, but it was miserable because I, I had a some kind of lung thing and I ended up catching pneumonia a few days later. I, I was having to fly down there and then to Australia and then back to the United States to play a show in oh, Denver. And then I just collapsed in Denver. So it was like Jakarta, my memory is just, my, I was, it was like I was, you know, like as an airplane starting to lose altitude and uh, before a crash. But I, it was absolutely mind blowing and, and, and it was an honor to play music for people with a completely different cultural history and background and story, you know, like something in our music made some kind of sense to people that, you know, in some ways it just seemed like a different planet. Um, it's like, you know, you know, it's yeah. almost like, and musically too, like if you listen to some of the traditional music of Indonesia, I mean, it just, there's a, there's a whole different uh, frame of reference musically. Have you heard of this app called Radio? I think with like five O's. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I've messed around on that a bit. I don't know why I just started diving into it, but like, yeah, you can put in like Indonesian slow jams from the 60s and 70s, you know? It's great, yeah. Yeah, and no, I it's like... Love that. Yeah, no, it's really amazing. Yeah, I do. I, I, I get bored easily. I love like American music and country music, but it's also really healthy to make yourself listen to music that has um, that has a scale that you don't understand because your brain will figure it out eventually if you keep listening to it it's funny when I put in cake into Google the other day one of the auto questions that comes up is like what genre is cake and then some answer that comes up is country music, question mark. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I'm glad <laughs> to hear that. Yeah, I think the last thing I want to ask you uh, before we go is about your uh, Plant a Tree project that has been oh, really yes. taking off. Well, that's exciting. Um, I've always wanted to do more with tree planting because I like uh, trees. Um um, you know, uh, we give away trees at some of our shows, a lot of our shows, and we have a, a map of the world that you can click on uh, different cities uh, and see the, you know, you can see Joe with his uh, cherry tree in, uh, in, in, in Fresno, California, or uh, Hans with his uh, apple tree in, in Germany. Um, and that's, I really like that. I really like the, like the idea of everyone having the experience at least once in their life to plant a tree. And then the best part is going, either being there beside it for the next 10 years or even cooler in some ways, going away and then coming back to it 10 years later. And that's what happened to me. And that's, what, that's kind of how I thought of the idea. 
um, of, of giving trees away and being able to watch people get older and watch the trees get giant. And uh, um, so, yeah, so we encourage people to send pictures um, as they get older, as the tree gets bigger. Um, we were approached by or approached one tree plant. I forget which way it happened, but um, it's a really um, well-rated organization that just has the goal of, of planting, uh, I think, as many trees appropriate, appropriately um, as possible. And so we are focused on uh, the fire-ravaged uh, parts of Northern California, Oregon, and Washington, uh, where we will... Um, we've already started planting uh, in uh, Oregon and Washington, I think. Um, but yeah, planting trees that work there, um, they'll be protected um, and cared for. Um, it seems like a really good idea to plant as many trees as possible right now. And I know that, you know, you have been slowly working on a new record. It's been almost a decade since a full record came out, though you did put out that Sinking Ship uh, tune in 2018, uh, which was really cool. Um, and I think I can see in that song the wrestling between, like, hope and hopelessness <laughs> in yeah. your writing. Yeah, okay. That's, you know? that's pretty perceptive of you. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So I'm t- just tinkering uh, with with things. I, I the the pandemic has really empowered me um, in terms of you know being able to record my own music and engineer and, and uh, I, I just it's actually been the silver lining for me um, not having to communicate to an engineer what I want is a big relief. Um, just being able to say, I'm gonna, I know which knob to turn, I'm gonna make this happen for myself. And in fact, I'm able to experiment a lot more efficiently um, rather than having to like try to experiment by communicating verbally with somebody. It's really hard with, with things like with, you know, tone or, you know, trying to explain how much distortion you want or compression for God's sake, you know, uh, these things are subtle. Um, so it's great, and I'm enjoying the process of uh, recording. Um, and there's a whole bunch of songs, uh, and uh, you know, I just I, I I'm in no hurry to release it. Um, obviously, <laughs> that said, um, you know, I, I was going to try to release it at the end of last year, but I'm so glad I didn't. Um, and. Uh, because I because it's getting better and better as I work on it. At a certain point, I'm going to have to stop. But for now, it's working well. So, well, I think for someone like me who you know has been in a band since I was about 13, someone like me who doesn't have a maybe traditional rock and roll voice or uh, any training of any kind, I feel like listening to your music growing up was always like a reminder that you can do it that you can be a little bit weird and have music that comes from different parts of the world uh that defies genre and that people like it and that people will get behind it and i think cake has always been that um inspiration for me 
that like you don't have to fit the mold that you can just do what you really want to do and people will follow right yeah well thanks for you know listening and, and uh understanding that um you know uh i think it was easy for me because there's so much music that i hated uh at the time that it was just i and you know that it, it helped me decide what i loved uh and it wasn't just one one genre or one culture um and so I, I, I'm fortunate, and I think it sounds like, you, you know, you were lucky enough to come to a similar realization. There he goes now. Big thanks to John McCray of Cake for talking to me. Uh, you can go to cakemusic.com. Uh, get all of their records. I'm sure some of them are on vinyl, and, man, they really hold up. Even the ones from the early 90s, which I grew up listening to, man, they sound so good. I don't have breaking news about their upcoming new record just yet. It's in the works, I'm told. Uh, you can, in the meantime, help plant a tree with cake in the cake forest. Go to cake-forest.raisley.com and uh, every dollar donated plants a tree with one tree planted. It's a great organization. Please do your part. You may have noticed that my squad, Dust Bowl Revival, is back on the road playing shows. Yes, the world is opening up, and uh, we announced a really cool fall tour with Smooth Hound Smith, who were on this very program several years ago. So please check that out, dustbowlrevival.com. And as always, the show on the road is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lupitin, and we are part of the BGS Podcast Network. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you on the trail.